Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Our Common Ground, Alternative Activists, Empowerment Talk Radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. I mean, that's the classic refrain, right, from uh, all these folks who get caught in the, uh, as they like to call it, the bigoted cookie jar, saying things they shouldn't say and thinking thoughts that are inappropriate and impolitic. As you said, the classic defense is, well, I'm not racist. I have a best black friend. And that's exactly what Herman Cain is. I mean, if you watch his newest campaign video that just came out, I mean, these videos are so badly done, they have to be genius. I mean, this can't be done by accident. He actually wa- uh, waves out into the audience, and like 99% white audience with about four or five uh, brown and black faces, and he lays hands on these folks and gives them hugs, and they start crying as though he's the next salvation. I mean, this stuff is unbelievable. I mean, as you, and there's another element here, because we always have to put it in context, as you and I like to do. So we know we have a ton of evidence about low IQ plus racism. And the other part that no one wants to talk about, and again, sort of thinking about our political moment, is this is why we're seeing this sort of noxious um, hostility to Barack Obama, because these low IQ racists also tend to be more authoritarian and more conservative. People mm. are afraid to see it. But, I mean, when you, as we like to say, when you connect the dots, he's just the iceberg of a bigger problem. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're somebody appearing, if you look, you're appearing in front, in front of an issue that d- involves race, it involves ethnicity, it involves class, it involves gender, it involves sexuality, it involves whatever it is. Is this the caliber? Now, uh, and, and let me point out, this was one of George Bush's good old boy appointments. Mm-hmm. 
and and understand this this judge Richard Sebel, this is the type of person that George Bush packed the courts with. This is not an aberration that we'd like to think, oh well, you know, he's just out there in the middle of nowhere, he's just an aberration. No. Matter of fact, by the time George Bush was finished, 70% of the judiciary from trial level all the way to appellate level had been appointed by, by, by George Bush. And George Bush thought Richard Sebel was the kind of person he wanted making decisions about people's lives. I mean, and here's the other scary part about this. I think we're giving him too much credit. He doesn't think he's a racist. You've got to live for yourself, yourself and nobody else. You've got to live Tonight at our common ground, he's back. Sometimes a respectable Negro. Our friend, political and cultural pundit and commentator, Chauncey DeVega. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Are you sometimes a responsible Respectable Negro, bring your A game and your 40.
the U.S. agency, federal agency, is looking for volunteers to assist them um, in in any way, if you have skills of handling phones or skills of packing boxes or unpacking boxes and you want to help, FEMA is looking to you and you can go to their um, website at FEMA.gov, FEMA.gov is the website where you can find volunteer opportunities. And don't forget, children will need books and toys and clothing. And if you can, uh, if you have an attic full of books and toys and clothing for children, it will be helpful and you can find websites that will help assist you in getting those items into the area. Also, we want to uh, congratulate President Barack Obama in his landslide roll over the Ramaneda election in his second term. It is historical, it is important, and we are going to be talking about some of that tonight. Um, so uh, we want you to settle back if you brought your drink and your chips or your popcorn with cheese covering. I don't know how anybody eats that. Ugh. But um I have my black bean hummus and my pinot uh right here with me and our number is 347-838-9852 and we hope that those of you who are listening if you'd like to join in our chat room you'll just take a little journey over to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and you can go right into our chat room. If you don't want to chat, you don't have to register, but if you want to chat, you do have to register. And the other is to hit that share button to let people know where you are, that you're listening to Our Common Ground, because it's Saturday night, and that's what we do. This is how we roll. Tonight for us is a very special night. Uh, Joining us is the none other than the respectable Negro who goes by the name of Chauncey DeVega. He's the editor and founder of We Are Respectable Negroes, which can be found at blogspot.com. A race man, he says, in progress, a cultural critic and essayist. We agree with him when he writes on his blog that he is a resplendent purveyor of Negro wisdom, collector of black wit, and holder of the sacred chalice of the ghetto nerd, of the ghetto nerds. And um, he describes himself as a believer in black pragmatism and honor the black freedom struggle. You have heard him because he is a frequent guest on the BBC Ring of Fire Radio, which you heard at the beginning of our program tonight with Rick Papentino, Ed Schultz, the Ed Schultz Show on MSNBC, and Joshua Holland's Alternate Radio Hour. Also, you've probably heard him with Tom Hartman and on the Burt Coleman Show. And his essays are featured by Salon, 
Alternet, the New York Daily News, and the Daily Coast. The New York Times, the Daily Beast, Utne Reader, which is one of my favorite. If you're not familiar with it, please do. The Washington Monthly, he's been in Slate, the Atlantic, and the Week, among many others. Chauncey DeVega, a sometimes respectable Negro. Thank you for coming back, Chauncey. We're glad to have you. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things that uh, people don't know about you is that you are an anonymous writer. Your name is not Chauncey DeVega. Nobody knows where you live. I've tried to figure it out. The last time you were here, I kind of like tracked you somewhere in the Chicago area. I don't know where that comes from, and I don't remember where. But I, I, I want you to share with your audience why you stay anonymous again. I mean, as we said last time, pardon me, you know, I'm, in from, I'm here in Chicago, uh, a few blocks away from Barack Obama's residence, if that's any clue. So if you're in Hyde Park, you probably know me. You probably see me on the bus. But, I mean, I think when you speak truth to power, you have to have a little freedom. That doesn't mean you don't have responsibility. But given how high the stakes are, um, and given that we have a lot of folks, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, who let themselves be censored the minute they start taking a paycheck and let themselves fall under pressure um, the minute they have to not necessarily be held accountable, but because of professional concerns or personal concerns and they're not willing to sort of stand high and tell the truth and shout it loud, I made a choice, you know, when I started this, you know, we talked last time, several years ago, to say, you know what, I'm going to be me with the volume turned just a little bit up, right? So this is the real Chauncey Vega, more or less. And I'm always going to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpleasant. And that's why I call myself a black pragmatist, you know. I got a lot of beef sometimes, a lot of heat from, quote-unquote, black liberals and black progressives who are dismayed by my real talk about the ghetto underclass and the culture of poverty, and especially with a lot of our communities here in this country, people of color. And you have a lot of uh, conservatives who are utterly dismayed by me because they're like, man, some of the stuff he says, he should be on our side. But then I reveal my utter contempt for uh, the face of Tea Party GOP conservatism in this country, and they're dismayed too. So I really am my own person, and I try to walk a fine line with telling the truth. Well, one of the things that you visited very, uh, very early after the election of Barack Obama, sometimes like seconds after the GOP was trying to figure out what, why they lost, why Mitt Romney lost. You talked about a demographic winter of white people and suggested that maybe one of the things that they should do, white conservatives should do, was to have mass orgies where no one wore <laughs> condoms. Okay? <laughs> so you got right to the point, and the point is now they're living on the magic lies of, oh, if we have more white people, if we can somehow explode the white people population, we'll win. We would have won. Talk to us about that, the implication of that. Yeah, you know, and that was a recent piece. I'm actually working on another piece this week for Alternate where we'll be talking more about these issues. I mean, what we have to realize right now is, is folks are trying to figure out why Mitt Romney lost. The simple reality of it is is that you simply can't in the year 2012 – rely on white identity politics in the same way that you did in 1988 to win an election, right? So one of the narratives in the media is what is quote-unquote called the browning of America, that America will be a majority-minority nation, but I think now they're saying 2040. 
One of my points is there's a whole lot of trouble with that thesis, and you and I can get into that some more, in the sense that white folks and whiteness, by definition, always keep on winning. Right? So a lot of the white people who are not considered white today, Hispanics, for example, uh, mixed-race folk and Asians, they're going to be the new white people in the 21st century. So you have all this hand-rigging. We have a lot of conservatives in the mass media running with the easy story, right? which is that Mitt Romney lost because he was simply, quote-unquote, too white, and the Republican Party's white identity politics turned too many people off. But here's the scary thing, and as I said, I'm so glad we're going to have a chance to chat right after the election, is that all that talk about white folk being in decline they were having these conversations in the 19th century after slavery. They're also having these conversations among white nationalists and white supremacists in Europe and also in the United States. If you go online and actually go to these people's websites and actually do some research, you know, I remember I was in high school and a young uh, gentleman who was a graphic artist came to my high school to talk about comic books. And it's one of the reasons I'm a ghetto nerd. I mean, it was so cool to have your hobbies validated and he happened to be African-American. And we were so excited and we're like, man, how did you get a job doing this? And he wrote a lot about race and about identity in his comic books. And he revealed to us, he says, you know what? I get the white supremacist newspapers. I get the KKK newspaper. I go to you know, the Stormfront newspaper, all that stuff. And we were really intimidated. We were like, whoa, you're black and you're le- reading this stuff? And he said, yeah, you better know what your enemies are up to if you want to keep yourself safe. So a lot of what you're seeing in the mass media about this hand-wringing, about white people in decline, that's a narrative that's bought, borrowed right from white supremacists. And you're going to see a lot of that on Fox News and even in more mainstream uh, center-left and center um, media outlets like PBS and NPR because it's such an exciting story. But the reality of it is a whole lot different. Well, it's really interesting that uh, during during uh, this entire uh, season, uh, especially on the GOP side during the GOP uh, debates and after the uh, choice of Paul Ryan, they were talking about um Ameri- the forty seven percent and moochers and mm-hmm. black people only wanting to be victims and mm-hmm. using their victimology uh to somehow make everybody else white people specifically be guilty mm-hmm. and now we're talking about as you characterize it in in your in your latest essay, a deep vein of white victimology because America is not their country anymore. I mean, and that's like I said, you know, and you use that phrase wonderfully. One of my former colleagues, a good friend, still used to write on my website, "We are respectable Negroes." Gordon Gartrell, he came up with that phrase, you know, white victimology, and that they're professional victimologists. And I mean, think about how absurd this is. As I said, I sat down after the election, listened to Rush Limbaugh, go online, you know, read the different Republican conservative pundits talking about why they lost the election. You legitimately have a bunch of folks, number one, who were surprised. I mean, they're living in their own echo chamber and they believe in magic, and they thought somehow math was going to be skewed against them, and that somehow math, rather, math was going to be, you know, was, was trickery, and that somehow Mitt Romney was going to uh, win when all of the statistical analysis suggested otherwise. So, number one, they're shocked by that. But, you know, put yourself in the position of folk, and I know this is sort of hard for some people to do, especially people of color, um, progressives and centrists and reasonable white folks who are our allies in this struggle for justice and for full citizenship and the common good. Imagine you're a white guy who's in his 60s or 70s. You grow up in a society where you do not have to be as good as everybody else to get a job. You can be high school educated and get a job in a factory, right? The world changes around you. Now there's a black guy who's president, a woman who's in charge of the State Department, all these black and brown folks you have to compete with for jobs, and all you have is that idiot box, either Fox News or right-wing talk radio or right-wing websites, telling you that this is your America. You join up with the Tea Party because you need validation, right? This This is not a new story. So from their point of view, they do want their country back because America, by design, is a country for white men, in particular privileged white men. 
And working class, and you know, as I like to say, you know, the largest and most subsidized group in this country's history um, have been mediocre white people. They got the GI Bill after World War II. Got them, they got the suburbs. They were able to get any dang job they wanted because they didn't really have to compete with women or people of color. They have 22 times the wealth of blacks and Latinos, largely as a result of racism in the housing market, and the sins of their grandpappies and great-grandpappies were able to be transferred into money to be handed down to them. And this really is their world. And when you really believe this is your world, there's a hell of a lot to be scared of. But here's the trick, right? If you actually think about, um, and there's a great comedian by the name of Louis C.K. Are you familiar with him? Louis C.K. has a great skit where he talks about, you know, what is it like to be white? And his, his punchline is, you know what, it's great to be white because you don't have to do anything and you get all sorts of goodies. And he's like, if I could sign up for this again, damn right I would. And I'm, a, I'm white and I'm a man, right? So we're talking about white privilege and masculine and male privilege. But if you actually sit down and think about some stuff I, I worked in my alternate piece this week, you've got white men, for example, are 88% of all the people on the Fortune 100 list for the richest Americans in the country. They are upwards of 86%, I believe, of the CEOs of every Fortune 500 company. They run Congress. They run the Senate. They run the Supreme Court. They have all the money. So for me, it's like the kid at the birthday party with all the gifts crying and boohooing because of the perception that another kid got something. But this is the sort of pathology that we're dealing with, and the right-wing media plays on this sort of victimology. And as I like to say to people, if white folks are losing in America, I don't want to see who's winning. <laughs> now, Talk to us a little bit about the ph phenomenon of the candidacy of Mitt Romney. Um, I, I'm still kind of like dazed about how he was ever uh, a candidate and close and, and got 47% of the vote. Uh, when you look, and, and, and it may be I'm dazed more than most people because I'm a resident of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and was when he was governor and he was never here. He was out of touch then, even more so because he had a smaller constituency to worry about being in touch with. And this this man is like a robot, uh, a, a capital vulture, uh, a person who in my mind, is a pathological liar and has borderline personality disorder. What were you thinking over this period of time? I mean, I was just so sure that they were going to go with someone who had a central nervous system, but they <laughs> didn't. They went with him. I mean, what were their options? I mean, he was the best option among, you know, out of a clown car. I mean, the Republican primaries were an accident. I mean, it was like watching a battle royale between fools. So who's it going to be? Was it going to be the, the black uh, pizza man, Herman Cain, Mr. Pokemon? Of course not. Was it going to be Rick Perry, who's a secessionist? Um, of course not. Was it going to be Newt Gingrich? I mean, with all of his skeletons, he's one of the most polarizing and divisive figures in the country. Of course not. So really, I mean, the Republican elders, right, the people at the top who are the kingmakers, they chose Romney out of the best of the, of the available options because Christie didn't want to run. Right, he knew he would lose. And I mean that's the other sort of inside story. You know, Christie was supposed to be the VP pick before Ryan. And Christie said heck no, because he was looking at the math and he's like, This is just a losing ticket. So I mean you're onto something too with Mitt Romney. I mean, given how many liabilities he had, given his pathological lying, given his lack of personality, given all the skeletons in his closet, yes, in the Electoral College it was a blowout, but if Mitt Romney won a few more, I think if he had actually gotten the magic number now, it's like seventy three percent of the white vote and actually was a little more competitive in uh, Ohio and Florida and a few other places, he may very well have been the President of the United States. 
So for folks who study yes. elections. As a matter of fact, Chauncey, three weeks ago, I was quaking in my belly that I was going to wake up and uh, have to deal with the idea that Mitt Romney was the president-elect of the United mm-hmm. States. I mean, and, and you know, and I was quaking, too. We can talk about that. You know, I was uh, the unpopular person who staked out a position that said Obama was going to lose. You know, and a lot of people were like, you know, Chauncey, how can you say Obama's going to lose? And I was like, yeah, Nate Silver is right. I believe the probabilities are overwhelming that Obama is going to win. But as black folk in the New World who survived the Middle Passage, created the Black Atlantic, uh, were slaves in the country's, quote, unquote, the world's greatest democracy, we are used to the absurd being real. So I would not have been surprised at anything, and especially when you have a lot of public opinion data suggesting that you had white folks, white independent voters in particular, white men especially, saying, yes, Obama's a better candidate. Yes, he can relate to people like me. Yes, he'll probably make the economy better. But you know what? I'm voting for Romney. Or you had other research coming out that suggests that race relations, in the, race relations in this country have actually gotten worse, and they're at their worst point since 1988. And you have a majority of white folks who uh, just – there was a great survey at University of Chicago, Stanford, Berkeley, I believe they all uh, worked together on it. They showed a majority of white Americans, and they said, quote, unquote, a majority of Americans. You look at the data, a majority of white Americans actually have deep anti-black and uh, anti-Hispanic uh, affect basically a type of polite racism, what we call symbolic racism. So nothing would have surprised me. So, I mean, everybody's celebrating about the re-election of the country's first black president, but as you and I have said, he's a president who happens to be black. He's not a black president. And it's fascinating to me that given how centrist he is, right, he's really a Republican light. He's like a Rockefeller Republican, right, that he's so polarizing a figure. And, I mean, that's what suggests, you know, something about America's racial id, where there's just so much sickness and hostility out there. So, yeah, we're changing demographically, yeah, Black and brown folk are, quote, unquote, going to be a majority if you combine all of our numbers together. But there's still a deep vein of white supremacy in this country. And here's the puzzle for us. And here's what we have to explain to our viewers, to our children, to our grandkids who want to believe this post-racial America stuff. How can you have a black man as president and still have a racist country? Well, I think that there were a a lot of reasons for which uh, President Obama was elected um in uh in, initially and that is that a man by the name of George Bush a war in Afghanistan a war almost in Pakistan a war in um in um <coughs> Iraq and i think that people saw George Bush as a person who was a dullard uh, who didn't grasp the full import of the wars that he was breeding and seeding. And um, and I think there was a man named Cheney. And that was the undoing of an electorate that said, I don't care, we just have to have an alternate. This is an alternate. But I do agree with you, Chauncey, that it unleashed um, so much of what happened with the Congress and the President, unleashed a permission. Uh, The Southern Poverty Law Center reports a tripling during uh, of uh, hate groups, a growth of hate groups during his first term and a tripling even of that number since the campaign began. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and that's, you know, the, the ugly, dirty secret here, right? This is actually a boom, right, uh, for the recruitment of white nationalists and Tea Party organizations. And people say, well, why are you including them together? And I say, well, the Tea Party are just a polite face of the John Birch Society in the 21st century. If you look at their signs, if you look at the public opinion data on what drives Tea Party members, they're really driven by, and here's some fun German for folk, the idea of a Herrenvolk society, which basically means there's the chosen people, and for them the chosen people are white. So when they say cut Social Security, they mean cut everybody else's Social Security, not ours. When they say we want to cut the budget deficit, we'll balance the budget on the backs of black and brown people, right? Don't balance on the back of folk like us. So when they say take our country back, that's what they really, really, really mean. But I made a list, actually, of all the uh, things that Mitt Romney said. And, uh, a few months ago when I started on this, about nine months ago when it was clear Romney was going to be the nominee, I basically said Romney is going to run the most sophisticated campaign uh, that we have seen in, these, in recent memory in terms of mobilizing white racial anxiety. And a lot of people were like, oh, you're exaggerating. It's the 21st century. And I said Romney's going to do what I call the Southern Strategy 2.0. And here's what he actually did. So I made a list. So, and I'm sure you were paying attention to this, too. Here's some of the things that Romney said about Obama, and this comes from the darkest part of the American racial subconscious. He called Barack Obama a thief, a lazy black man, someone who's not really American, who doesn't understand our society. He sent his surrogates out to say that Obama likes to sleep and eat, uh, that he's lazy, that all he wants to do is play basketball, that he's incompetent. Romney ran lies, willful lies in these ad campaigns that said Obama stole hundreds of billions of dollars from Medicare, he ran other lies calling Barack Obama a welfare king, which basically means he wants to steal money from white people and give it to lazy black people. And there's some other things that were said, too, but as I said to Mike Papantonio, my good friend on Ring of Fire Radio, and also on the Ed Schultz Show, I said uh, Mitt Romney basically called Barack Obama everything but the N-word. Yes. He basically said that. Yes. And here's the other thing that was fascinating to me during the <laughs> debates. He called Barack Obama a boy to his face. And if people think that was spontaneous, they are sadly mistaken. And then his wife, Mitt Romney's wife, was recorded right before the campaign. Another video came out. I don't know if you heard this, the tape that came out, where Mitt Romney's wife was in private calling Barack Obama a boy again. So they played uh -huh. the ugliest yeah. part of the white racial subconscious. And nobody, save for Chris Matthews and a few others, at the very end had the courage to call it out for what it was. I'm glad you said at the very end, because um, after... Chris Matthews got the shiver up his leg uh, when um, uh, Barack Obama was elected the first term. Um, he seemed to have been attempting to reculture his thinking around race in America. It took him a long time. It took him almost two years, and then in that second year of the of the administration, he was. Uh, attempting to be there and 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 since i mean i was outraged uh last um tuesday night when chris matthews came on air and suggested that barack obama should have thanked and given credit for his re-election in his acceptance speech to bill clinton and since then, Chris Matthews has been trying on his hood again. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, trying to get a better fit so that it's not seen. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because I think that all of the pundits, and I have been on the air saying uh, for, for a couple of years now that all of the people that we think of uh, that network that's the liberal network 
was in fact not they they it was almost like they kept putting their toes in the water and the water was still too cold mm-hmm. uh, I think you're onto something and you know you sort of play I'm very transparent I think there are a lot of good folk on MSNBC I claim quite a few of them as confidants and friends um, professionally but I think you're right in terms of the overall fear of the mainstream media to actually mm-hmm. come out and speak truth to power so again this is the irony of post-civil rights America the worst thing you can call a white person today in America is a racist, mm-hmm. right? Because the burden of proof is on you. And until the evidence is insurmountable, save for them burning a cross and hanging somebody from a tree, they can say, I'm not a racist, despite every bit of evidence that's available. Mitt Romney demonstrated from day one, and I've said this repeatedly, that he is a white racist. And my definition is if you use racism to get elected, if you give comfort and aid to racial appeals, if you gen up white racial resentment against people of color and other folk to win an election, you are what you do. He is a racist. Um, and the other thing that was not discussed, and again, we're, we'll, we'll get into this, and I mean, I was just shocked, but again, the third rail in American politics that nobody wants to talk about because then they're called intolerant, is Mitt Romney was, I believe, 32 years old when his uh, church, the Mormon church, decided that black people could get into heaven as equals. He sat in that church, which was up to that point a white supremacist church that said black people could not get into heaven. Heaven itself actually was segregated, and I actually believe that black people were supposed to be the slaves of white people, uh, depending on how you read the theology, right, for the Mormon church. Nobody asked him about that. He was asked once years ago. No one said, you know, Mitt, the country is very diverse. Give some comfort to black and brown folks out there, black Americans in particular, that you don't believe that, you're, that, uh, that your faith has not influenced you to believe that black people are inferior. Moreover, why did you wait until you were 31 years old to do anything about it? Why didn't you disavow your religion or even work to change it like your father did? Because here's the comparison. Barack Obama was in Trinity, Baptist, was in a Trinity Church with Reverend Wright. Reverend Wright in his sermons did not say anything that any adult with a reasonable understanding of American history does not understand to be true. And that almost derailed his campaign. And it's just fascinating that Mitt Romney was not asked any of those questions either because the media were cowards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even the 47% should have a speech in Boca Raton should have been looped over and over and over. And you're absolutely right. The only place that I saw serious discussion about the character of the Mormon church and Mitt Romney's role as a bishop was mm-hmm. at the Daily Coast and uh, Mother Jones and Rolling Stone, but I didn't see it at M- M- MSNBC. I didn't. I, 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 it was almost as though his religion, religious practices and beliefs, was off, uh, off the, the the table. And that, and that gets us to the idea that black people in America are what uh, scholars and others have called anti-citizens, right? Our belonging is always questioned. It's always contingent. We are outsiders in our own country. So we always have to prove we belong, right? We always have to prove that what's going on in our churches is, uh, is loyal and normal. Uh, we always have to sort of defend our political practices and beliefs, and we're always asked to disavow certain people who make white folks uncomfortable. You know the routine. When, whenever a black person speaks up on something, he's asked to claim the behavior of, other, white, of uh, other people of color. And if he doesn't, then somehow he's out of bounds as well. But, I mean, this is part of a pattern. John McCain, he didn't have to disavow Pastor Hagee, who's a rabid anti-Semite. Sarah Palin, her husband, belonged to a secessionist organization, the Alaskan Freedom Party. That was a militia group that was advocating for the secession of Alaska. If Barack Obama's wife, or if a black or African-American political candidate, had any such connections, even tangentially, that would be all over the news. 
So, again, white privilege, what we call the white racial frame, where white folks and their politics are assumed to be normal, natural, and good, and never critiqued or queried, is never brought up. But black folks and brown folks as well, our values and beliefs are always held up to scrutiny on a different level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but one of the disturbing indicators for me is that um, I hold that this president buys into that. Uh, the fact that, as everybody says, he threw Reverend uh, Jeremiah Wright, who has been a friend of this program since the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, um, and um, that he threw him under the bus, is an indicator that President Barack Obama does not understand the fundamental complexities of how race works in this country. And as long as he uh, shies away and denies <coughs> excuse me, the prevalence of that complexity, we can't, as the people say, depend on him. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that's on one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is something that I always say here is that that the black community has never had anything delivered to them by way of the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. And the closest we got was uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson signing a link Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation and Lyndon Baines jo- Johnson signing uh, the um the equal opportunity acts mm. uh the civil rights act uh in 1964 so you know here we are with the with the first icon of black struggle and 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 as you say you know it's it's a very confusing kind of narrative for black people because when you think about it we're dealing with a person who is truly not of descendants of the slave and understand his experience in america in that way i mean he's got it good he had a white mother and an african father so uh, his ability, his capacity to be multicultural is authentic. But our expectations about what that means have not been realistic. And I think that that's one of the things that people like Dr. Cornell West and Tavis Smiley and Glenn Ford uh, and other so-called black left progressives have been trying to address, but not in a way that helps the black community express it inside their own realities. And the reality is that we needed somebody. (laughs) And it wasn't John McCain, and it sure as hell wasn't Mitt Romney. (laughs) But, I mean, you said a whole lot there, and, I mean, I'm going to politely disagree and be provocative and say two things. One would be... Um, we need to do a critical recalibration here, right? So Barack Obama is a, is a man who is, happens to be African-American who is president. He's not a black president, and he is part of a white government, right? Um, this is a country historically run for and by the uh, political interests of white folk, and it's black and brown folk who have had to push American democracy to be more full and more inclusive. But you said something that i got to, like I said, recalibrate a little bit around, is that Barack Obama has a deep understanding of race in America. 
Barack Obama is one of the smartest folks in terms of understanding white racism and what he needs to do to get elected because a politician's first obligation is re-election. Barack Obama knows that if he talks about race or if he talked about race in any substantive way, he wouldn't be president. Um, number two, we can debate you know, if that's good or bad, you know, if he's speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is an inside player who is part of a power structure. He is one of, he's a child of the elite, and he wants, just like every other politician who, who aspires to be president, wants power. So did Barack Obama make a strategic choice to say, you know what, and I, I, there's a great book called Yes, We Can by Joe Feagan that looks at how Barack Obama used race and navigated around it to get elected. And one of Obama's strategies was to pander, I think, very smartly, to sort of colorblind this notion of America as a colorblind society, to not at all talk about real issues of race and racial inequality, and to sort of be the right black candidate that makes white folks comfortable. Right? He doesn't talk about that slavery stuff. Uh, there's actually some really cool research that says Obama talks less about racism and race than any president since 1961. They went and looked through all his speeches and addresses. Obama realized that he had to say, okay, black folk are going to vote for me anyway. But I can't alienate these white independents and other folk who want to get past this race thing if I want to be president. And that was the strategic choice that he made. And that's why I always tell people, Barack Obama is not your savior. He's not. He's a very powerful man who's a transformational figure who I voted for and who I support in many ways and also am critical of. And Mitt Romney was simply an unacceptable alternative. But he has amazing symbolic power for the black community, which is why we are so invested in him. But he is incapable and, I think, unwilling because of institutional constraints to do anything for black people. And we have to accept that. I mean, that's the paradox of the situation. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree on, on, on that point, and I agree on the reiteration of, of, of the points that I was trying to make, and mm-hmm. that is that he is powerless as a politician who wants to stay powerful. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, though, uh, I mean, but his fate, uh, we have linked our fate to his success, our failure, as it's reflected in, 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 the, poli- in the larger political framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow we think that as he rises, so do we, and that's not the reality. That's true. So one of the things I want to get your opinion about, and we've got to take a break, but when we come back, I want to get your opinion about how all of that and his understanding of how to use race as opposed to how we work race, which is different, um, and how how all of this, his understanding, our understanding better of what what his limitations are as the President of the United States, and how we inform how we go forward. The other thing, when we come back from, from break, and I would like uh, to, to get your, your opinion about, is how we formulate our response to the progressive permission of white folks to try and pitch us back to an era of Jim Crow. And maybe Jim Crow is not the word I want to use, but that's how I'm seeing it. Thank you for being with us. You're on Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power with our guest tonight, Chauncey DeVega. 
the essayist, pundit, commentator, and analyst of race, politics, and culture in America. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you want to get in on this call after this break. For the next episode of Black Women in the Prism, Tamora Lomax, editor of The Feminist Wire. The Feminist Wire provides socio-political and cultural critique of anti-feminist, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist politics. Here at TruthWorks Network, November 13th, 10 p.m., The Feminist Wire and Tamora Lomax. Its editor. We hope that you'll join us. Black Women in the Prism, reclaiming our lives and ourselves. At TruthWorks Network, November 13th. Check out, check out, but check out, shut up, because if those are your two choices, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, and this bigot, this racist, then I don't see that there's a big issue there. I don't see that there's anything, any other choice. You either stay home and stay disengaged, but then I don't see how you would have a voice. I don't see how you would be able to complain. I just read off 13 things that this president has given or has added and has done for the black community. I don't know if I'll be able to help. <laughs> for those who say he hasn't, you know, you need to be aware of these things. Nine one four three three eight one six one zero. Let me go to nine seven two. The Alpha Show, Fridays, 10 p.m.
TruthWorks Network, advanced, urban, progressive, political talk. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. The Alpha Show, only on TruthWorks Network. Nothing to say, nothing to do, I'm nothing to give, I'm asleep without you. Maybe he say You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground, the sanctuary where we speak black truth, broadcasting brave and bold. I'm Janice Graham, and our number is 347-838-9852. And tonight, our guest, talking race, politics, culture, and the craziness is the editor and founder of We Are Respectable Negroes. Chauncey DeVega has come to join us again. Chauncey, thanks so much again for being with us. I just love hearing you talk. I could just lay back. Um, I don't have my 40, but I sure have my Pinot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things, every every time I hear the voice of Red Red Fox, my brain immediately goes, screech, right to you. it 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 is really interesting how much we collectively understand that when when you say we are sometimes respectable negroes and one of the things that i saw is we tried to be real clear and i think people came to the show tonight thinking i was going to talk about isn't it wonderful that the president was reelected yeah it is wonderful but the thing is we've got a lot of work before us mm-hmm. because uh we've got can i say beat him into submission <laughs> Black Bean Hummus does something to you. Not beat him into submission, but we've got to do different, respond differently to his second ascendancy than we did the first time around. Mm-hmm. But before we were going back, to, uh, going we were going off on break. One of the things I did want to talk about was this whole notion of how we take the way in which he campaigns, what he says, what he understands about race, and how he uses race, and inform that response. What do you say? I mean, we, you were joking about we are respectable Negroes, as I said, provocative to some, but I, I don't think that controversial. Barack Obama is respectable Negro number one in America, if not the world. I mean, his whole energy and his habitus and his way is based on a certain type of black respectability. But here's where the debate uh, comes. Can you be a quote-unquote respectable Negro without being a radical truth-teller who speaks truth to power in all things, right? So, I mean, Uh I gave a book recommendation before 
brother Fred Harris, great political scientist, has a book called the, um, the Price of the Ticket. And he basically points out a great irony that electing Barack Obama may actually be the final nadir, the final moment of the civil rights, not coalition, but the logic of black politics. Because now, what the heck can you complain about? Right? Yeah, we still have institutional white supremacy that nobody wants to talk about, right? And people have a lot of anxiety because they don't even want to deal with it. But a lot of the old guard strategies, and I have a lot of love and respect for the elders because we stand on their shoulders, but a lot of times I think a lot of our uh, progressive uh, pundits, a lot of community organizing types, a lot of folks who can say I was out there in the struggle in the civil rights movement, like Obama joked in the debate about horses and bayonets, they're fighting uh, 20th, they're in the 21st century using 20th century tactics. And a lot of the language that we use to actually try to get things done, especially given the fact that race has changed in a lot of ways and the language of race has changed, and we live in a moment that's called the, the moment of neoliberalism where the market runs everything despite all its inequalities, that we need to up our game because some of us are playing checkers and the game is really three-dimensional chess, and we need to move forward. The past is great, but you have to think about the battle you're fighting today. Well, one of the things that I think that we don't – we have gotten confused about is the notion of what leadership and the characteristics of leadership mean uh, in our communities. Um, I have noted often and aggressively that until we experience political empowerment at the local level, what the president is doing really becomes irrelevant in our activism. So if we can't extrapolate what all this means in terms of where we begin, and I think we begin locally as um, Tip O'Neill always lauded uh, his constituency to say that all politics is local. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, it is more that. But I like the idea of making signs with uh, Red Fox and his can of 40 <laughs> that bumper stickers, I don't, yeah, bumper stickers, T-shirts, hoodies, and the whole nine yards that says Barack Obama is the number one um, respectable Negro in America, and I'm number two or something like that, uh, <laughs> to keep reminding us and to remind him of the capacity that he has to extend his brilliance to strategies that are good for us. And that doesn't mean that he has to do it personally. One of the things that I've always been critical of, of, about this administration is who they have brought to the White House, who they have put in federal agencies where the, the, the black community depends on people understanding the protocol and 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 the real problems that the agencies are there to address. I mean, that's a lot. I know that's a lot. <laughs> I can't go on. But, but a, go ahead. No, but I mean, here's a provocative question. You know, sometimes, like I said, you've got to you know you got to turn the screwdriver a little bit and say things that make folk uncomfortable. How much power does Barack Obama really have? Right. So abroad. He is the most powerful man, arguably, in the world. He's continuing the imperial presidency. He's not too different in a lot of ways from Bush or Romney in terms of spying on the American people. He's still waging the war on drugs. 
Um, they're still using drones overseas to kill innocent people and expand imperial power. There are whole sets of issues a lot of people care about that are off the table for discussion. But how much power does Obama, as chief executive, who happens to be black, in a Congress and a society that is hostile to the fact that someone like him is in, is in charge, in a moment of declining budgets, right, uh, they find money for war and killing folk, right, but they can't find money to rehabilitate our communities, right? They find money for Wall Street, but they can't find money to bail out, you know, Joe Q. Public and Main Street, as they say. But, I mean, we, we have this image of this amazingly uh, powerful black man who's president, but, I mean, he has a whole lot of institutional constraints on what he can do. And, I mean, some of those constraints are particular to the fact that he's black. And, I mean, a lot of folk are afraid of that. They want to jump up and down and hoop and holler and cry with his election, but here's a scary thought. Could a white candidate who happened to be get reelected as president actually get more done, specifically in terms of policy agendas and policy uh, needs for people of color? I would dare suggest, yeah. I would say a white candidate who, have, who gets Please elected president don't let it can be do more. Romney. Well, not Mitt I mean, Romney, but a black Democrat <laughs> could certainly do more for us than a black president. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of folk, like I said, the symbolic moment is great. But in terms of actually getting things done and delivering on it, I just have to wonder, is, are his hands so tied that he can't actually do anything? Mhm, mm mhm. Mm but then, who who is there on the horizon? It certainly isn't. Um, even though she has performed par excellence as a, as the Secretary of State, domestically, uh, culturally, class wise, I don't think it's Hillary Clinton. Um, but it looks like she is going to prepare her war chest. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure And it certainly wouldn't be John Kerry mm -hmm. I mean um, do So The the idea is For instance um, It looks like um, Barack Obama Is going to have an opportunity To put a non-career person As the attorney U.S. Attorney General mm -hmm. That's a good thing one of the reasons that um, Eric Holder has not performed in an outstanding way, I believe, is because he's career justice. He grew up in that system. He embraced that system rather than to disassemble it and reinvent it. And I think that that's the challenge and that is something that this president can do. Begin to look at his cabinet and look at the cotton. I mean, there is no doubt about it. His cabinet has performed in a much, much more excellent way than previous cabinets in their various roles. However, they're all cookie cutters, made from the same cookie cutter. Their establishment... Uh, institutionalized thinkers rather than innovative and creative about what these agencies can accomplish. I don't see anything different coming out of FEMA. Their performance is, yes, stellar in, in, in relationship to um, great job brownie FEMA. But at the same time, there has been no reinvention of that agency. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a few things there. One is, again, 
trying to think critically about how organizations work. They, organizations reproduce their own culture, and they're not going to appoint somebody to be in charge of an organization who's too much of an outsider. But, I mean, here's the bigger thing that we as folk of color, and I would also say white folks in general, but especially black Americans because of our particular relationship to the federal government, where we actually really deeply, intimately understand that government can do good, not always evil. The government sometimes is the solution, not the problem, is that we're tying ourselves to governmental institutions that in the next 10 or 20 years as budgets tighten, as services are cut, and as the private uh, sphere continues to grow in terms of sort of taking over for the government, that we're really holding on to a sinking ship. So we have our eye on a ball that's moving, and my concern is that we're not thinking forward enough to say, okay, the government is going to be less responsive, less able to attend to our justice claims, less willing to do anything for anybody. And are we going to be sitting here with our hands in our pockets? Because we should be the smart ones. We know what happened to America's central cities after the 1960s into the 80s. We know what deindustrialization looks like. We're the miners' canary. We're the ones who get sick first, as the old joke goes. You know, we get uh, America gets a cold, we get the flu. So I'm hoping that there are going to be some transformative visionaries coming out of the black community because of our historical experience and because of our wisdom and how we're so far ahead of the ball on so many issues to say, you know what? Hitching ourselves to this horse and this carriage may not be the best idea. Maybe we need to be pragmatic and think about other solutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the protective uh, filters that we have with the re-election of Barack Obama is the Supreme Court. Um, and w one of the things that when you talk about how government works, how organizations work, is that despite who is on the court, there are people who are senior on the court who have the ability to influence what the court hears. Um, and I think there, there are very few Americans who understand that that there is a filter that goes through what mm -hmm. how those those cases are chosen and it is based on influences outside of the court for mm -hmm. instance citizens united would not have been heard under a liberal court it simply would have never been heard they would have put it on the docket and let it stay on the docket till 2055 but because of the forces on the outside that influence the court. And I don't think that that's going to change other than uh, this president will have an opportunity to appoint probably two justices. And and that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about within the, the federal system. And, you know, and certainly we need to be mulling that over. Mm. But what I'm interested in is is to have you talk about how we individually get informed about our response to this president. Um, I, I noticed that the Latino organizers, community organizers, were in front of the White House on Wednesday on immigration. Mm -hmm. Where the hell were we? Um, still hungover from the post-election <laughs> victory parties. And what we did the last time was we left the party, we went home, and, and shit flew. <laughs> and we had, didn't even have butterfly nets. I mean, there's a, here's the big question I'm sure you've thought about as well. I mean, black folks consistently give the vast majority of their vote to Democratic candidates. So a lot of that makes sense given the policy positions that Democrats support. I mean, I laugh when you hear 
uh, conservatives and others say, well, black people are racist because they overwhelmingly support Barack Obama. My response and others has always been, as a person of color, listening to what these people are saying about black and brown people, you'd have to be a damn fool to vote for the Republican Party. So it's not racial tribalism, it's common sense. So, I mean, but we have to ask ourselves, what are we getting for our vote? So Barack Obama knows, I mean, our turnout was even higher than it was last time. Um, I believe it was, you know, it went up two or three points. I mean, it was unbelievable to sort of see black churches, black community organizations, other folk getting the vote out to support Barack Obama. But we give him 93, 94% of our vote, but how are we holding him accountable? Because you figure somebody's giving you free money and they're not asking you for anything. Are you going to change what you're doing? But on the other hand, our paradox is we have to support him symbolically and personally. And we may, you know, in private talk, you know, about the brother and say, you know, I'm disappointed in X, Y, and Z in our barbershops and our hair salons here on the Internet, on talk radio, in semi-private spaces. But we know we're going to vote for him because we know that he's a reflection of us, for better or for worse. And given all of the challenges he's faced, and I, you know, as I said, I did an interview last week on Ring of Fire Radio where I said this, and I stand by it. I don't think a lot of white folk um, get this in the same way. When Barack Obama is marginalized by white conservatives and the white media, and they call him basically every word that you can call him without using the N-word, without using the ugliest word in the English language, that's an insult to all of us. Because I remember talking to my mother about this, and I said, Mom, you know, if they can call Barack Obama a lazy, step-and-fetch-it, eat-and-sleep-and Negro who just plays basketball, who's an affirmative action hire, who's a black thief, who just wants to take money from hard-working white people and give it to lazy black people, what the heck do these people think of us, the bus drivers, the teachers, the janitors, the homemakers, the regular black and brown folk who you know, keep this country running, what do they actually think of us? And that's really a lot of the root of our support for him in the sense that we are that symbolically and personally identified with him because, like, man, if we ain't got his back, nobody will. But then how do we translate that into actual political power? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you, know, you know, I'm a race woman, right? You know, I'm a respectable Negress. <laughs> and I was outraged when the attacks on him as president came, and we did nothing. I mean, we talked about it on our Common Ground. People called Mm -hmm. up and said, oh, isn't it awful that the man called the president a lie? I'm outraged. But what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, I called the parliamentarian of the House... And they told me I had to email them, <laughs> and I said, I think I would go to jail over what I had to say in the email. Mm-hmm. Because I think that Joe Wilson should be reprimanded and suspended from the House for the next five years for his behavior. There has to be some kind of parliamentary rule uh, for these crazy people. Mm-hmm. and 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 then... Um, you know, I, I, but I, I was outraged that we didn't do anything, and it just snowballed month, that week after week after week of it all. And then I think when the GOP had their debate and everybody had their vitriol um, uh, b- between uh, Mitt Romney and and Perry and Gingrich and that other fool from um, the the S man. I've, I've been calling him Santorum. Uh, Santorum. <laughs> uh, and it just escalated to the point where we all had to hear it as and, and absorb it personally. So I, I, I think that that you're right, and and it makes us a little bit crazy. 
but it is clear that white America was willing to sacrifice their last vestige of integrity on an altar of a racist god. But I mean, we always have to that's be how Mitt Romney got forty-seven percent. No, absolutely. I mean, we always have to be careful too. I mean, on one hand, we don't want to hoop and holler and jump up and down and say, you know, and start quoting Dr. King when we have all these structural inequalities of wealth, uh, income, incarceration, the war on drugs, housing segregation, the job market to deal with. We've still got a whole lot of work to do. But on the other hand, you have to be careful, too, because Barack Obama wouldn't have been president if it wasn't for a whole lot of white folks voting for him, right? So this last election, the choices between the two parties were very, very distinct. Um, I like to joke that the masses are asses, but maybe in this case, Mitt Romney was such a horrible candidate, uh, such a vociferous and practiced liar, and his and his uh, character is so lacking that the American people said in mass, no, nah, we can't have Ayn Rand, Paul Ryan, with Mitt Romney, who's a serial liar as president. It's just too dangerous. But we also have to be honest, too. And, again, the mass media is not talking about this. They're so hung up on the diversity of America that uh, Mitt Romney won the white vote among every uh, cohort of white voters, old, young, male, female, college-educated, and non-college-educated. This was an extremely polarized election where Mitt Romney knew he represented the white people's political party. He miscalculated insofar as he thought that would be enough to win. But with a little modulation, and if the economy were just a slightly bit worse, and if the media had continued to not do their job, we would have Mitt Romney as president, and I stand by that. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. But l let's talk a little about uh, two things that were a phenomenon uh, during this election. And I didn't want to spend the whole evening talking about the election, but there is so much. Um, I think that this this uh before Thanksgiving or something should be our teachable moments. <laughs> I come from a family of twenty seven teachers, so uh <laughs> I have to have my teachable moment too. <laughs> but let's talk a little about the the black preachers saying that they were going fishing and advising their um their congregations to go fishing as well because, of course, we can't vote for someone who supports equal marriage rights and 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 birth control mm -hmm. and abortion. Well, in every family, you have somebody who's going to flap their gums and say what uh, they feel like they need to say to get attention. But we have to ask ourselves as good empiricists, as people who actually study politics, like folks like you and me who are more activist-oriented who think about this stuff, did those appeals actually work? And the answer is clearly no, right? We're still going through the information. But, I mean, that's another issue where we need to clean up our own house. And it's, it's deeply troubling to me when I see uh, folk of color, in particular black Americans, especially in the church, I'm not a religious person, but sort of the understanding the black church as an institution is one of the foundations of our uh, community, to actually see them justify limiting the freedom of our gay, lesbian, queer, and transgender brothers and sisters and some twisted understanding that somehow it will protect their freedom. Right? So if we want to be on the right side of history, right, and in the, in the right side of justice, we need to be on the right side of justice for all people. And I think that's something where, you know, I think it's much exaggerated, where a lot of folks talk about, well, the black folks in California turned out and are against gay rights and they messed up these referendums. I mean, a lot of people have looked at that information and said that's simply not true, right? But we, as you know, there are black conservatives. Uh, there's a, a movie that came out, I mean, it's so bad, it's laughable, called Runaway Slave. Have you seen it? It's put out it's on by black YouTube conservatives. or Netflix or something. Yeah, you can watch it online. Yeah, I, I mean, saw that. <laughs> there are these black I said, okay, you and I 
and Michelle Odom are the only three people. <laughs> but they are well-funded. I mean, there are black conservatives, right, who are very well-funded to put out this propaganda to legitimate white racism and to spin a fiction that says that black folk in particular do not have sense, do not make good choices, and we're not adults. Right, so when Herman Cain back in the day, not so long ago, said we're on some sort of plantation, that's what he's saying. But again, every community has traitors, and I call these particular types of black conservatives, not the Booker T. Washington black conservatives, not the Colin Powells, but I mean these black-faced, shucking and jiving black conservatives who are on the dole, who are on the payroll of the Republican Party, of the Koch brothers, who basically get paid to denigrate black people. They're out there. Right, and a lot and, of their rhetoric is driving a lot of this opposition. With people like Sarah Palin, otherwise she wouldn't know the the term. Absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, we have to be very careful in terms of saying, okay, are these uh, points of view about gay marriage, for example, or policy positions in support of Republican candidates, are they organic to the black community, or are they being ginned up by outside forces in their own interest? And I would say, if you dig deep. A lot of the stuff we're seeing when you have these black conservatives saying, look, 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 we're authentic, a lot of these folks are not, are not a product of the black community or, or social and political institutions. They are being financed by outside agitators. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, one of the questions I've been posing for the last two months is, okay, they have billions of dollars to run Mitt Romney's campaign. Where is that money going? It's going into television ads that lie. It's going into events that lie. But where else is that money going? And um, I am convinced that it went into a lot of very dark and evil places. I mean, there's there's a lot of going on here. As I said, you know, this is where I always try to pull the curtain behind so that the public can understand what uh, is really going on in American politics. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago, and I stand by the description. It was really, really popular. I was surprised. Where I basically compared this election to professional wrestling, where you have a bunch of actors, you have a script, you have manufactured drama, you have controversy, and everybody knows how it's going to end. But the media needs to play along with the horse race, right? Because they need to sell tickets. They've got to keep butts in the seat, right? So even when they knew that this thing was you know, 95% in the bag for Obama, they need to keep ramping up the drama, right? You have conservative media who are lying systematically, like you know, propagandists from Stalin's Russia or from Mao's China, telling their folks that Romney's going to win, and they actually believe it. But who's actually working for the common good? Who's actually working to make sure that every American citizenship rights are respected? And when you get into this game online and when you start freelancing and when you start talking to people and doing research, and I mean, you saw a lot of this, I'm sure, in your career, there's a lot of money out there. And there's a lot of money from conservatives in particular because they're so well organized from their foundations and through their think tanks to support conservative independent journalists who will put, at, who will put paid for editorials in newspapers supporting their policy positions on things like uh, privatization of schools. Um, they will pay bloggers, conservative black bloggers, I mean, my joke is I'd be a millionaire by now if I were conservative because they do approach you and they will pay you. So the American public needs to be much more critical in terms of how it consumes information. They need to understand there's no liberal media, there's no uh, conservative media, there's corporate media. And they need to be much more cynical about thinking about interest groups and how people manipulate their opinions. And that goes for Obama and the Democrats and the Republicans as well. This is a very sophisticated game. The advertisers who sell you your iPads you don't need – are also selling you political candidates. So the people need to up their IQ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're talking about your November 6th essay when greed and neoliberalism came to professional wrestling 
on election day do you really want Mitt, the million dollar man, Romney, to be president? When I read that, uh, you, you know I always scream. <laughs> when I'm reading you, I'm screaming, and I'm anybody who's listening, I will. I'm quoting, and you got to read this. And um, you're, you're absolutely right. For those of you who are just joining us, this is our common ground, and our guest tonight is a respectable Negro. Sometimes, Chauncey uh, De Vega is with us again. Chauncey, one of uh, the things I want our audience to know is that you can subscribe, share, tweet, Facebook with Chauncey. His We Are Respectable Negroes blog is located at wearerespectablenegrosblogspot.com. And you can connect with him. I am every it, – it is one of the things that – I do every morning is check to see if there is a new essay because they are so well worth your time. And I'm putting it in the chat room and see that's one of the things that uh, makes um, coming to the chat room important because we put all this good information in the chat room. And uh, I'm putting it, wearerespectablenegroes.blogspot.com. You can follow him on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you can even talk back to him Uh on his blogspot. I don't talk back to you too much. (laughs) Now, let's get, and I know that um, you uh, are going to, have to to run soon, but I want to get your take on on something else that you wrote last week, and it was about the University of Mississippi riots against the um, re-election of Barack Obama. Uh, You wrote that there are a number of puzzles and contradictions that still need to be resolved as we work through how the symbolic power of a black president may not translate into an improvement in relations across the color line. Now, we've talked about that, but one of the things is I want you to comment on is that you also write write in that in that piece racism is a tradition and a habit. And the other thing I want to talk to you about is Mike Papatino and why um I have a hard time finding him. But anyway, but talk about the racism as a tradition and a habit. I mean, racism is is learned behavior. I mean, um, we can talk about the origins of white supremacy and racism. A lot of folks don't understand that racism is a new invention. I would argue it's one of the greatest inventions of all time. Racism, as we understand it, I mean, really didn't come into being until maybe the 16th century, 17th century. And it's highly adaptable. It changes with the times. You can teach it to people, right? And, I mean, the, the, the evil genius of colorblind racism is that now we live in a perverse moment because it is perverse. Um, it's, it's bizarre. We're talking about racism and racial inequality makes you a racist, where the person who tells the truth is somehow the troublemaker, where the person who says, you know what, we have some basic contradictions in our democracy, whereas I pointed out with the story about the University of Mississippi where everybody wants to say, oh, young people, they're so post-racial. No, they may consume black popular culture, quote-unquote, in quotation marks, is BET is not black popular culture. They may like hip-hop. They may watch black and brown people on TV. 
they may like to listen to certain types of black music, but do they really have black friends in the real world, not on Facebook? Do they really you know, have a social network because their society is so segregated? And one of my claims, it's not just my claim, there's a great book called Front Stage, Backstage Racism. I mean, there's a whole series of books on what's called colorblind racism. And one of the hypotheses is, yeah, America's changed, obviously, right? In many ways, we've got a black man as president, black folks in a multicultural democracy and leadership positions, black and brown folks who are upperly mobile, who are majority of whom are middle class. But what I would believe, and a lot of other folks, and like I said, a lot of data on this, is that this generation of young white people in particular, they know the rules of how to act in public, around issues of race, right? So they know not to say racist things. Um, they know to try to be politically correct, but in private, in their jokes and their humor, on the Internet, on Twitter, they're not saying stuff that's all that different from what their great-grandpappies were saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So You're a absolutely lot of- right. Um, Madam Noor uh, ran a piece that had maybe about 200 tweets, the most racist, vile stuff I had ever seen. I mean, from porch monkey to die nigger to, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just just the worst stuff I had ever seen. And, 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 and I grew up in apartheid, in the, the, the southern apartheid. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and the joke now with this new generation, the Facebook millennial generation, is that their defense is it's just a joke. Oh, I was just playing. Oh, I have black friends. You know the joke, my best black friend, yeah. right? Uh-huh. They have all the Oh, I even mechanisms. sleep with black men. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. And that's nothing uh-huh. new. I love when people say that. I'm not racist because I'm in bed with black people. Well, you can go back in a time machine three, 400 years ago under slavery. That was not too uncommon. Who you choose to have sex with is not necessarily an indication of your political priors. We can talk about Thomas Jefferson on that one. Or uh, uh, Strom Thurmond, for example. But they have the script, and America has changed. We can look at changing racial attitudes. We can look at public opinion. We can open our eyes. But we can also see how segregated our society is. So our puzzle is you can elect a a man who happens to be black, but he's the right type of black guy, right? He ain't one of those black people from slavery, right? He's one of those articulate ones. He's not a troublemaking Negro. He doesn't make white people uncomfortable. He goes out of his way to make white folk feel good about themselves. We can elect that guy, but we don't want one of those uncomfortable black people who tells us the truth. So I'm always curious and scared in a very basic way. So if you make a timeline and say, okay, if we start with our countries, you know, the first colonies were here in the 18th century or or the 17th century, right? Maybe even a little farther back, going down to Jamestown, right? And you draw a timeline and you look at all the years our country was a formerly white supremacist society from the Constitution to -to day-to-day behavior to its laws to its institutions up until 1968, we'll say, the vast majority of this country's history is one where racism is the norm. This situation we're living in now is an experiment, and it can easily be turned back given the right circumstances. And a lot of people think that's all conspiracy theory, dystopia. I'm like, no, I'm a gambler. I like to go to the casino. If somebody had to give me the odds of a country that's as young as ours is, in this moment of you know, 30 or 44 years or so, 43 years since the civil rights movement, sort of that, that, uh, the very end of the movement, versus hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where we were a formerly racist society, nothing would surprise me. I'm a betting man. I would say given the right circumstances, that can easily be turned back. <laughs> You're listening to Our Common Ground, our guest tonight, Chauncey DeVega. He is the race, political, and cultural top analyst in this country. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to get in on this conversation with Chauncey DeVega. We're going to go to our phones and 111, you're on the air with Chauncey DeVega, a respectable 
Negro. Hello. Hello. You're on the air. Oh, I'm on the air? Yes, you are. Oh, oh okay. My wonderful um, friend from New York. <laughs> um, look, I wanted to talk about the way the mainstream media is handling uh, Obama's win. And, you know, tell me if you think that, you know, that, that, that my uh, view is valid or not. But it, it seems to be that they are saying that because white people didn't vote for Obama, that somehow uh, it's not so great. Mm-hmm. And the way they, because whenever a white president wins and the majority black people don't vote for them, uh, that's never an issue. However, they seem to be making an issue of the fact that white people did not vote for Obama. Do you, do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? You're, you're referencing the fact that they are saying that this is not as legitimate because minority. That, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm a little nervous, but that's exactly nervous. what I'm trying to say. This is family. Chanti, you want to uh, respond to uh, our caller from Virginia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a brilliant and incisive observation. I mean, you're actually echoing something that was an essay on the website Politico.com a few days ago, where you had oh, one, really? of their, one of their editorialists basically saying, yeah, you know, Obama really doesn't have a mandate because it was the majority of uh, black and brown folk helped to elect him. And you're right. It's like the votes of people of color and to, to women as well um, are somehow less valuable, right? So our vote only counts a third is white men's votes, right? Because this is really about white masculinity because, like we started out, a lot of white men of a certain age are scared to death. And this is their quote-unquote country, the Pat Buchanan's, the Bill O'Reilly's. You can go down the list. Yeah. And the narrative you're right in the media is that somehow all those people who voted for Obama who were not white and male, somehow they don't count. And because they don't count as much as white men's votes, Obama really doesn't have a mandate to lead. And you're spot on. I mean, that's what we call the white racial frame. It's working again, right? And here's another interesting sort of asterisk to that is that if you look at who voted, I mean, it's fascinating. It's not that people of color and women and young people were out of step. It was that white men who overwhelmingly supported Romney, they're the ones who were out of step with what was going on, but they're never going to look in the mirror and say, my God, how did I get so hung up on voting for this Romney guy when everybody else saw him for what he was? Can I say just one more thing? Um, The mainstream media, quite frankly, I call it public enemy number one. They perpetuate and validate the views of these conservative races. Um, For example, when the Tea Party was um, uh, getting their due, the mainstream media covered them for several months, and they showed those images of Barack Obama as Hitler and as a witch doctor over and over and over. And it went on right up before the 2010 election. And those images do not hurt, didn't hurt the Tea Party. They hurt Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So, Well, you know, you know, one of the things that I think was the major salvo in all of this is that a major network pundit indicated 
and announce two minutes after the the Obama acceptance speech that if it hadn't been for Bill Clinton, he oh, would I not have been elected. Mm-hmm. A, a, a black man has to have a white man to even to elect him president of the United States. And you're absolutely right that uh, the media attempted to delegitimize his victory based on the fact that minorities, uh, that, that brown people and black people voted for him at a rate of 92% of yes. all their votes. And well, thank you so much. I'm really enjoying. Who the 8% were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really enjoying the show, and um, thank you so much. Well, thank for, you. Uh, We're always so glad to have you with us. All right. Bye bye. And we hope uh, that all of you, thank you very much for that call. That was a very insightful call. We're hoping all of you will join us on Tuesday night with Tamura Lomax the editor of the Feminist Wire at Black Women in the Prison, 10 o'clock. I'll be hosting that particular episode, and I hope that you will join us at TruthWorks Network. You know, Chauncey, we have so much to talk about. We now have uh, five programs. We just finished a series on Working While Black because um, we have to fight at every angle. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that we're doing the um, Black Women in the Prism Unleashing the Power, Fury in the Light series is that because I think it's important for our community to understand what all these attacks against reproductive rights, Mm -hmm. um, the, the neglect of black women in the political narrative mean as we go through these next four years. And I'm actually you know, really... Four years, I'm retiring. <laughs> but I'm really glad Thanks. you brought up reproductive rights. I mean, because this is a, it's a nice way to come full circle again, especially with what the last caller alluded to in terms of the way that the media chooses to tell stories. So only a few, a few very lucid people called this out. So there was a reason that conservative, uh, in particular conservative white male candidates, were race-baiting against Barack Obama, talking about white people being victims, right, saying that Obama is, you know, a black communist, uh, Muslim, atheist, thug who takes control, is controlled by his dead voodoo daddy and Bill Ayers. All the efforts to delegitimize him were simultaneous, right, with all this perverse, and it is just perverse, obsession by conservatives with, uh, with women's reproductive organs, from transvaginal ultrasound to talk about real versus fake rape to strange beliefs by a very narrow, old-school, dominionist uh, type of Christianity that looks uh-huh. at women as the property of men, talking about, I forgot the, the representative's name who got in big trouble, actually hurt Romney by saying you know, the whole legitimate rape stuff, is that we're looking Asian. at a crisis in white male conservative masculinity. They're predominantly from the South. If you look at the Republican Party where they're based, they're the old Jim and Jane Crow South. They are a product of a culture where white men are in charge of their families, in charge of their homes, in charge of their communities, and their authority is not challenged. So the hostility to black people, the anxiety about immigrants, and this perverse obsession with women's reproductive rights are part of the same profile. This is part of the same political personality that's at work here, where they've got to control women, 
They've got to keep their position in society, and they've got to control black and brown folks because they're the alpha dog. They're the alpha dog in their homes, and they're the alpha dog in uh, terms of the public sphere. And very few people were connecting it saying, you know what, there's something going on with their collective psyche that demands examination. Well, I, I, I also think that it's important for us to begin to study Southern culture, to understand exactly the the framework from which these people are spawned. <laughs> I just have to say spawned. I love that word, spawned. Um, because in listening to the public discourse about reproductive rights, reprodu- access to to women's health resources, um, you would think that you were on some ship, hostage ship, in Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) You would think that at some point, you know, I'm one of those people that um, I'm constantly rereading Octavia Butler because it somehow keeps me uh, stayed. It keeps me centered. Mm. Um, and you know, and and I'm sure Alpha is out there laughing because I'm stayed and centered in science fiction. But it's 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 almost as though you could write science fiction about these people who are elected officials. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're, you know, if we're mentioning and, sci-fi here, I mean, before I lose the thought, I mean, I'm a huge sci-fi ghetto nerd. I mean, for folks out there, of course, you know, the legendary George Shuler, Black No More, I mean, is required reading. But, I mean, there's a great uh, book that was written by um, in the 1950s, I believe, uh, The Martian Chronicles. Um, and The Martian Chronicles had a sequel where it was a collection of stories um, where one of them actually was about uh, black folks make a rocket ship to go to, the, to go to outer space to get away from white people and Jim and Jane Crow. And then all these white folks don't want to let black people leave because it will cause a mass psychosis, and they'll have to start critically examining themselves. And then in the future, the earth is destroyed, and the ancestors of these white folk who black folks left on earth then arrive on our planet. And the issue becomes, do we enslave them? Do we treat them the way that they treated us? And that's Ray, and that's Ray Bradbury's that's the sequel to The Martian Chronicles. It's a great book. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it's like... Um, and and I suggest that people do read that. I haven't read that in years. I mean, I'm talking about 20 years, and I have forgotten all about that book. Um, but it's it's if many black people are experiencing this as surreal, and one of the things uh, that we want to do on this program over going into going forward to January 1st is to get people in some based in some reality about what all this means in their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've heard over the last two days from John Boehner and Eric Cantor. Eric Cantor actually came up from out of the um, mudslide he had been under, um, and 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 we haven't heard from Paul Ryan. Something happened to him. Do you think? Something really happened to him. Well, <laughs> this, what happened to this him is a brought, man who didn't he didn't win in his county or the plate <laughs> district from which he, he I mean I, I I don't I don't you know this is the reality. I mean, here's somebody uh, that, who I would really be fascinated to have you. I'm sure he's probably been on your show before, but I mean, you were talking about sort of understanding the the political personality types and the, the 
mass psychosis that a lot of folks seem to be under. I wonder what Brother Naeem Akbar would say about all this. Well, you know, um, I have known um, Dr. Akbar since I was in elementary school um, when he was Luther Weems, and we had a very, very close association with him with this program for many, many, many years. And he hasn't been with us for, uh, I think it's been about four years, because his health has not been well. Mm. He was trying to finish a project uh, before uh, he could. He he has a degenerative joint uh, disease. And uh, there are people who... Um, you know, like Dick Gregory. I mean, I would, but but you're absolutely. And I play a lot of Dr. Naeem Akbar's clips. One of the things that gives me nightmares um, is that I had probably around two dozen tapes of Dr. Naeem Akbar's interviews, and um, they were stolen in one of the radio stations where I work. And the and a, the DJ had erased them to use hmm. them for his program. Oh, now you talking about ready to ready to assault somebody physically assault somebody? Um, but uh, I think you're absolutely right that he has been he has targeted the real issues and focused on this for a very long time. And for those of you who do not know Dr. Naeem Akbar and you are new to this show, please go to YouTube and listen to some of his lectures um, on our program at TruthWorks Network, Power Views. We have a number of his lectures uh, in our archives. Um, um it, it, Chauncey, help me out. One of his most prominent books is the Chains, uh, Breaking the Chains mm-hmm. of Slavery. Of mental slavery. Of mental slavery. Um, and I, I do think it's important for us as a people to begin to have personal study mm-hmm. so that we understand uh, these issues in a, because they are so complex. Because... Mm-hmm. In the same way that we didn't know whether we were supposed to love Barack Obama, support Barack Obama, hate, be a hate, Barack, Barack Obama hater, or mm-hmm. what, uh, and we can't afford to be now mm-hmm. um, caught up in that. I mean, and- I am one of the people that I believe in expressing to lots of people in government what I believe is the problem and what I believe is part of the solution. That's not to say, I mean, but that's, I think that that's my duty as Alpha on the Alpha show that airs on TruthWorks on Friday night at 10 p.m. He always ends his show by saying that when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. Mm-hmm. And we have to. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons that I I check your your blog every day is because sometimes I don't have the words. Sometimes I haven't seen the 
the little crevices uh, on an issue, and there you are. I mean, that's a, I mean, and I always, you know, smiling, a black man blushing. I mean, you're always so complimentary, which is I always say. Anytime well, you call, I, love I, always, you. <laughs> I, I will always be there. You're one of the first folks to give, you know, we are respectable Negroes the love uh, that I felt like we had already deserved and uh, take advantage of some of that capital we've built up. But, I mean, since we, we mentioned Brother Akbar, I mean, we were earlier thinking about, you know, how do we prepare young people? Um, how do we prepare people of color? How do we prepare all of us? And white folks, too. I think white folks would benefit greatly from listening to Dr. Akbar. And I have yes. a lot of white friends who I have turned on to him because they need to understand that white racism and white supremacy, those are a type of mental illness. And yes. white racism hurts white people just as much, if not more, than it hurts people of color. Yes. And I always tell folks this when I do workshops and give talks. I'm a huge fan of Akbar and our other great folks who were working on similar issues. And I say you will become remarkably empowered psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually when you realize that you're not the problem. And we have... Black and brown folk and gay folks in this country and women to a lesser degree, but certainly, um, I would say certainly not to a lesser degree, in a similar way, have internalized racism. We have uh-huh. sexism, uh-huh. homophobia. And you have a whole group of folk, right, running around who have not had a moment of transformative consciousness to understand what their society is bombarding them with. So I say, you know, when I see young uh, black and brown youth acting like knuckleheads, shooting each other dead in the street, to me, yeah, it's about drugs and crime and it's sort of this hyper-thug masculinity. But it's also they've internalized the narrative that says people who look like them are not valuable. When you see folks making poor life choices, when you see us not being politically active, when you see a certain cadre, not all of us, I'd say the vast majority of black folk are not like this, but there is a certain cadre of the knucklehead element who cultivate ignorance, and ignorance becomes something you wear on your shoulder, like a badge of of honor. And I would say that's a national problem, too, because Sarah Palin, I mean, she's a celebration of ignorance, right? Conservative talk radio is a celebration of mediocrity intellectually. But in terms of my love principle for black people, and this is where I learned so much from Brother Akbar, I used to see him at the black man think tanks in Ohio when my friends would drag me to them. And yeah, I didn't realize how much Ron I was Daniels Yep, I didn't realize how Alana much I was uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And I mean, but if we have to, if we can steal ourselves and understand the institutional forces coming at us, then we can understand what Obama's going yeah. through, too, and how sometimes he's above it but they can bring him right down to earth whenever they yes. want to, and that's the power Absolutely. of white supremacy. Absolutely. And, and once you, you know, understand yourself, you can defend yourself against it. It's really interesting. Um, I gave a talk on race in America and the role that government plays in dismantling racism to uh, a staff of new lawyers. You know, they're fresh out of law school, um, Many of them, maybe about ten of them, many of them believe that are people who, for the first time in 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 their families, that there is a professional. They're very proud that they got through law school, blah blah blah, and they're just young white little blonde people. And I do a lot of talking about race, and they were looking all kind of confused and everything. And I have assigned reading because I have the authority to do that with these people. And one of the things that I have assigned uh, is that if they are uncomfortable about black people telling them about race, that they should read Tim Wise. Mm -hmm. And once they read Tim Wise, then they'll be ready for Ishmael Reed and Nathan Hare and Naeem Akbar and and uh, Dr. Molefi Shasante, and I said, and you will have a thirst for a greater understanding. Um, But I think that we do need to do that. But 
going back to what we need to do for our children, uh, one of my Facebook friends reminded me that back in the early 80s, or yeah, early 80s, that it was a fad in Harlem and Brooklyn for young men, instead of swagging their pants to their knees, that what it was a big fad, whether they had read it or not, it was to carry a copy of the J.A. Um, Rogers book in their back pocket. Hmm. How things change. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And so um, I, I think that we have to take some responsibility, and I keep saying this on the program. If it's nothing more than taking your grandson or your son and taking five of their friends and having a Sunday afternoon Black Power Academy. Just five boys, I mean, um, and 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 having them to learn some parts of speeches by Malcolm and Marcus Garvey and mm-hmm. and watching on YouTube Naeem Akbar mm-hmm. and saying, uh-huh. okay, we'll eat pizza or Sunday dinner. See, around here we don't have Sunday dinner, so I have to say pizza. I, I don't eat pizza anymore. Um, <laughs> I've changed my ways. Um, so we have got to take responsibility for that. I happen to live in the neighborhood where the mayor of Boston lives. Mm-hmm. And I leave stuff for him to read on the windshield of his car. <laughs> I just go up to the car, put the stuff in under the windshield and say, "Here's some more for you." I mean, and I would I... say Go ahead. No, no, I would say, you know, sort of riffing on your idea about a Black Power Academy. I mean, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll open up my own franchise. I'd call it the Black. I'd have a Black Pragmatism Academy or Black Common Sense Academy. Uh-huh. Because on, because on one hand, you know, we, we can't be too hard on young folk because young people always wear clothes that their elders look down upon and shake their heads. We know that. Um, but I was thinking too about romanticizing the past because I mean, coming of age and I'm a member of the hip hop generation born in the '70s. I remember when Malcolm was cool. But I also remember uh, Adolph Reed famously wrote in one of his essays and his uh, collected a uh, collected series of essays in a book called um, Stirrings in the Jug, where he talks about Malcolm X, and he has a great anecdote in there. You had all these young brothers rocking Malcolm X hats who thought it was Malcolm the Tenth. So, <laughs> performative, the politics of style, when it's transformed into something that's just a fad or a fetish, doesn't help anybody. But I do think we're on to, you're on to something in terms of intergenerational wisdom, intergenerational knowledge, <laughs> confronting the culture of black and American, American cultural nihilism that's all over our society. Exactly. And, you know, since we're playing psychologists, you know, I'm very old school. I wouldn't say, obviously, I'm very critical of patriarchy and misogyny, but I do believe, and maybe because of the way my father was and the men in my life who were black and white and Hispanic and Native American, the people who mentored me, is I do think, in particular for young black boys in this society, they do not have appropriate models of black manhood. Um, so hyper-thug masculinity becomes what it means to be a man. Walking around with your pants on the ground becomes what it means to be a man. And that brings us full circle to we are respectable Negroes. We need to talk to our kids about life skills, about learning about respectability and comportment, understanding that you have to depict and present yourself in a way that maximizes your chance for success in this world as a black man in this society or as a young woman of color or as a young black woman. And a lot of that stuff is being done in many, many, many homes but in whole communities it isn't. And that's why when I see a lot of the brothers sagging, going back to Brother Naeem Akbar, I think a lot of our young men are caught up in an ego development state that's in, and it's in, they're infantilized. 
It's like they're still children because my mother pointed this out, and I think she should have got a Ph.D. in psychology. She said if you look at a lot of the young brothers sagging, it's prison culture, number one, and they don't get that. So they're signaling something about their own availability for sex with other men. So they're, they're hyper thugs, but they don't get that they're signaling that they're also gay, and they would not be able to reconcile that cognitively, I think, a lot of them. But two, that they're sagging, and they look like children in swaddling clothes, uh-huh. little babies yeah. walking around in oversized clothes. Yes. And yes. how can you be taken seriously as an adult if you're walking around and you're stuck in an ego state of an infant? And what does that yes. mean for a whole culture where that culture. is taken as a mark of manhood? And a generation of men. Yeah. Because we're seeing signs in our community of a great level where where black men at age 30 are stuck on 18. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, I mean, that's the joke, you know, I, I study black popular culture, write about it. I mean, one of the I was at a hip hop conference a few months ago, and I gave a talk, and I said one of the things that we need to struggle with. It was basically for parents and high school teachers trying to figure out what hip hop culture, commercial hip hop, means for them. And I pointed out, I said a lot of folks don't know who's making the music. I was like, these are white corporations who are working with black men. A lot of these MCs who are in their 40s now, late 30s, early 40s, making music for 12 year olds. Uh-huh. And people, You're I was like, think about right. that. So, I mean, it's an infantilized, dumbed-down culture. And yes, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And yes, the Internet has changed how music is released. But, I mean, here in Chicago, sort of the crime and violence around a young rapper named Chief Keef, right? So, this, like, you know, he was involved in the shooting, and one of his rivals got killed. It was been all over the Chicago Tribune because it's in the context of all these gang murders. So what do we need in terms of looking at Obama? Because Obama ain't going to solve these problems. But how can we use Obama in terms of the politics of black respectability to say, here is a role model for you? You may not agree with all his politics, but his comportment, his energy, his dignity, his grace. We may not have to be ten times better the way we used to be, but you still got to be three or four times better. And how can we teach you those life skills? He is a respectable Negro, Chauncey DeVega, the editor and founder of We Are Respectable Negroes. That can be found at wearerespectablenegroes.blogspot.com. Dot com, and we hope that you will become one of his regular listeners. Chauncey, it's been a pleasure. It was way too serious. <laughs> <laughs> we and covered all still, sorts of stuff. I, I, we, we have, we have, um, have to do this often. You want a radio show? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I do have a feature. We're gonna. I'm redesigning my website, shameless uh-huh. self promotion. I'll be getting a new URL uh, in the near future. We're also going to be integrating a podcast on uh, mm-hmm. probably every three weeks. I got a lot of really cool guests lined up that I think will surprise people. So we are respectable. Negroes is growing, and we're going to have a podcast. So I may not have a radio show, but that's, you'll uh, be able to hear great. me. And we'll redirect it to our website at ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com because we're building on that right now. Excellent. So, uh, Chauncey, stop by any time. We're always oh, here on Saturday night. And um, we know that you will keep us respectable. <laughs> I try. Okay. Thank you so much. Chauncey DeVega, uh, the respectable Negro sometime. I'm Janice Graham. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're going to go out for a few minutes, and we'll be right back to talk with you. If you leave me, 
real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show. Hi, this is Janice Graham suggesting to you that your Monday through Friday talk destination must be I Declare on Blog Talk Radio with India Declare. Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Oh, no, honey, we can't put in, we can't, oh, my gosh, we can't have any expectations of clean air. Who are we, the American people, to want, I don't know, some clean air and some clean water? God forbid. Oh, let's see, anti-education, Pell Grant, screw it. If you can't afford to get in, you ain't getting in. That's the uh, Repub motto. And, of course, the anti-woman. We are. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, buddy, we are, look, now, you tell me, that does not seem to be in the favor of the American worker. We have seen the aggressive assault and attack on labor in this country. Clearly, there is a degradation of uh, the standard of living in this country. I, I think it is just flat out uh, undeniable. People are uh, learning to live with less, uh, on less, and uh, uh, and it's tragic. The poverty numbers are uh, through the roof. Come join India Declare, bringing it real, raw, and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Soul Apocalypse, the most powerful force on the earth. A soul of fire. When oppression is profound, the in order to live, in order to locate, in order to feel oneself, unfortunately the reality is the oppressed make certain concessions, certain mental, psychic, and spiritual concessions. In this moment in history, at in this very hour, uh, we are still very much uh, in a part of and on that river. We still feel its rhythms, its tide, and we're certainly captive to its current. I think in a sense it is very uh, much time uh, to call for the fire. I think um, it is very much time uh, for African Americans to begin to seriously rearticulate our ongoing struggle and about social justice. Where spirit matters. Lies, only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where spirit matters. What is there to explain? Give anything away until we have it all. Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. 
Well, at least in your mind, if you want to be. Some of our fine programming, powerful programming, truth-telling programming on TruthWorks Network. On Wednesday night, Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. He brings it hard, he brings it true, and he brings it with no apology. If you think that the most powerful force on the earth is a soul of fire, then you need to be at TruthWorks Network on Wednesday nights. On Friday nights, it's Advanced Urban Progressive Politics with the Alpha of the Alpha Show, and we hope that you'll join us. All of our programming is at 10 o'clock, and our special, Black Women uh, in the Prism, Unleashing the Power Fury in the Light, 10 p.m. This episode coming up with Dr. Tamura Lomax. She is the editor of the Feminist Wire. Makes no bones about anti-racism, anti-feminist, and anti-imperialist politics in America. And we hope that you will join me with uh, our discussion about Black women in the academy, and you know she'll she'll put it in a better way. But here I go, the bullcrap that has to happen in order for black women scholars to amplify their voices. It's ten o'clock on Tuesday night, and we hope that you will enjoy us. There are many ways that you can support the work of Our Common Ground. And you can go to our Facebook, which is OCG Radio Talk on Facebook, and you can find all of our programming has their own uh, Facebook page. You can Twitter us and follow us on Twitter at Janice OCG, uh, hashtag Talk That Matters. You can also find us in on the web at Our Common Ground, our community center, what I call our community center, where you can blog, have your own page, um, upload videos that you think are important to us as a community, uh, photographs of your children and the snowstorms and the, all the kind of things that members of our community do. That's ourcommonground.talk.ning.com. And then we are pressing on by building our community at ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com. And coming up, we're going to be putting all of this together because I am now, Our Common Ground Media is now the owner of blacktalkradio.net. We have our own domain. We're going to be bringing everything together under that domain uh, we are still building. We we certainly want to thank our friend Chauncey 
DeVega for being with us tonight, and we want to thank you for being with us tonight and hope that you'll join us on Tuesday at TruthWorks Network. Um, try to do something for somebody else. Try to find a way in which, in your own way, you can empower our people. It's important. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for being with us. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend. Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.